good morning, Redemption Church. Thank you so much, Mr. Okai. I just want to say that I'm so happy to be here this morning, excited to be bringing the Word of God on Father's Day. But real quick before I uh, get to preaching, you know it's Father's Day after all, so let me just go ahead and uh, you know get this cracked open here. This is a root beer. By the way, just in case anybody was one. Here you go, Ethan. Thanks, man. All right. Happy Father's Day, Redemption Church. All right. I'm going to have to do that for four services. That is so much sugar. Holy cow. But, hey, I just want to say I'm so happy to be here with you this morning. This is going to be a, a wonderful Sunday morning, a wonderful Father's Day. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Brandon Stacy. I serve here as one of the elders uh, in process at Redemption Church. And while Pastor Byron is out on sabbatical, we've had guests pastors and preachers and speakers come in to fill the pulpit uh, while he is out with, uh, with Ashley getting much needed rest before they return here to Redemption in just a few weeks. But again, before I get into the message, I just want to say happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room, all the fathers. Can we just give it up for dads uh, this morning? I want to show you a, a picture real quick. This is a picture of myself. Uh, no, that's, well, that is a picture of me. That's not, the <laughs> that is not my dad also. Oh, that is hilarious. There we go. Yeah, just a picture of me and my pops. Uh, that's a recent picture that we took together. Uh, so happy Father's Day to, to my dad. This next picture is just me and uh, Courtney and the kiddos. Uh, yeah, they'll be here later this afternoon. Just proud to be dad of those two wonderful kids. Man, that is a good-looking family. So yeah, happy, happy Father's Day, and I want to say something. Before we get into the text this morning, before we get into the sermon, I just want to say something about fatherhood really briefly and just say that, hey, having a good father in the home is so important. You know, if we, if we get into the statistics and we look at what it means to have the presence of a dad in the home, I want you to just listen to some of these items, some of these statistics that are lower because of the presence of a father in the home. Infant mortality. Children born with low birth rate, emotional and behavioral problems in the home, neglect and abuse, injury, obesity, having poor performance in school, teenage pregnancy, being incarcerated as a juvenile, getting involved in alcohol and substance abuse, criminal activity, suicide. All these things are lower statistically in a household where a father is present. And I want to say this morning, it's important, you know, some of us, we didn't have a good father in the home. Some of us right now, we don't have a father in the home. And there's two things I want to say here. Number one is that I want you to know that God is a father. God is a father. He, he loves you and he cares for you. This morning, God the Father is actually, he's calling you to himself this morning. And number two, I want to say that if you are a man in the church, if you're a father in the church, be wise counsel. Be a mentor, be available, that you're called, really, as all Christians are called, we are called to care for the orphans, to care for the widows. And just this the willingness to care, the making yourself available to young men and young women in the church who may need your support can be a miracle for that person. Yeah. So I just want to say that before, we, ha we haven't even got to the text this morning, but happy Father's Day, open up to Acts chapter 4. That's where we're going to be at this morning, preaching before I'm preaching. We pick up from last week where we saw the in the beginning of chapter 4 in the book of Acts. Trevor brought an amazing word last week. 
that we had Peter and John standing before the council and they're answering for this miracle of healing the crippled beggar and for preaching Christ and, and the resurrection. And they had performed this miracle on this man. He had been unable to walk since birth. And Peter, he used this opportunity of this man being healed to begin to preach the gospels. And, and the religious leaders, they're provoked, it says, by Peter's sermon. And they put him into prison overnight because the next day they want to confront them about this miracle that happened and about the message that they were, they were preaching. And so the council, the, the next day they question them and they ask them, they say, by what power or by what name did you do this? They're asking about this miracle of healing the beggar. And so Peter, he, he boldly explains to them that this man, he was healed by the power and by the name of Jesus. And then he presents them with the message of the gospel. He says, this Jesus that you killed, that you crucified, it's in his name. And it's by his power that this man was healed and that he's now able to walk. And he explains that it's Jesus alone who has the ability to save and that there's salvation in no one else and in no other name. In the council, the religious leaders, they're stunned. They're, they're taken aback. How could it be that these untrained, these uneducated men speak with such boldness, with this, with this courage? How is it that they have so much understanding and they realize quickly that they'd been with Jesus? And there's something I want to point out to you this morning before we get to our actual text. This is interesting. You need to realize that Jesus was still with them. See, the religious leaders, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But what the disciples realized is that Jesus is still with them in that moment. It wasn't that they had only been with Jesus, but they're still with Jesus. Jesus told the disciples before he left, before he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he says that I will be with you always even until the end of the age. And so Jesus, he's crucified and he's resurrected and he's ascending into heaven and he sends the Holy Spirit, the comforter to be with them. And the disciples, they were filled with the spirit of God. And so as we get into our text this morning and we look at opposition against the gospel and we look at the situation where Peter, they're being bold and courageous in the face of these hostile people that when you find yourself in this same position, that Jesus is still with you. That if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, then Jesus is with you. The same Holy Spirit will empower you when you share the gospel with your neighbor or a friend or a coworker. That the Holy Spirit will encourage you when you share your testimony. This isn't even preaching yet. This is just, this is just recapping what Trevor already preached last week. You know, Jesus told the disciples that this time would come. If you go back to Mark chapter 13 and read Jesus telling the disciples, he said, you're gonna find yourself in front of the authorities. You're going to find yourself in front of the religious leaders. You're going to find yourself being opposed by the religious elite. But he told them not to be anxious. He told them the spirit of God would give them the words to say that they're understanding their, their courage. It's because the presence of Jesus was still with them. And the religious leaders last week, we read, they recognized that Jesus was with them. And this is where we pick up today. So we are in chapter 4. We're going to be starting off in verse 15, working our way through verse 22. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see that it really sheds light on this intersection of faith and culture. And what does it look like as a Christian in today's age when we encounter this opposition to the message that we, that we preach? And so there's three things that I want us to see this morning in the text. The first thing that we will see is that the message of the gospel is going to encounter opposition. That there are going to be people who oppose the message of the gospel and how you respond to those people, how you respond in those moments is important and it matters. The second thing that we're going to see is that we need to be obedient at all costs. 
No matter what it's going to cost you, we need to be obedient to the call that God has placed on our lives to share the gospel, to create disciples, to teach them, to obey everything that he commanded. We're going to see the disciples encounter this situation where their freedom of speech is being challenged and being taken away from them. How would you respond? How should we as Christians respond? And then the last thing that we will see is that although persecution is going to persist, praise is going to rise up. That they're going to continue to experience persecution in this moment and after this moment as you read through the book of Acts. But praise is going to rise up amongst God's people. The church is going to grow. Is going to grow. People are going to encounter this living God. People are going to receive salvation. People's lives are going to be changed in spite of and in the face of the persecution that the early church is going to experience. And that is the same for us today. So let's look at this passage, verses 15 through 22, and then we will walk through it together. So it says this, chapter 4, verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred or deliberated with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And so they called them. And they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no reason to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old of age, more than 40 years old. And so here we find Peter and John and the man, the crippled man who was healed, and they're standing before the Sanhedrin. So we can try to get an image of what's going on here. They're standing before them, and this council is made up of 71 members. So it's Peter and John and the crippled man, and then they're before 71 people, all the religious elite, the the Pharisees, the, the high priest Annas, Caiaphas, the Sadducees. They're all together in front of Peter and John. And I want to point out something here that's important is you need to remember that these are the same people that just a few weeks prior put together an illegal trial for Jesus. These are the same people. So you can imagine the, the uncomfortable similarity that Peter and John must be feeling as they're in front of these people because they recognize, hey, they just killed Jesus just a few weeks ago. Like they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know what is going to happen next. They don't know what the decision that this group of people, that this group of men are going to make about what has happened. And really the same could be said for the religious leaders because surely they thought, well, hey, just a few weeks ago, we killed Jesus. Like, what are these guys still doing here? We thought this was over. We thought this was done. We thought we took care of this, this religious rebellion. We thought this uprising was, was behind us, that we had stamped it all out when we crucified Jesus. But sure enough, a man is healed. And here are Peter and John preaching the gospel and preaching about the resurrection of Christ. So the religious leaders, they're, they're stunned. They're, they're, their mouths are open. They're, they're taken aback. They don't know what to say. They don't know what to do because they're standing before them and they're, and they're speaking and they're preaching and they're performing miracles with this authority that is eerily similar to the same authority that Jesus spoke with, the same authority that Jesus taught with, the same miraculous experience that, that followed behind Jesus everywhere that he went. 
And so they, they don't know what to do. There's the, these blue-collar guys, the fishermen, and they're standing with boldness and courage in front of the white-collar, educated elite. And then, of course, the man that was healed standing right there, too, making it even more awkward because he's just there. And, he, and it says he's, he's praising and he's jumping and he's dancing, right? And so you can kind of get a feel and an understanding of what this scene looks like. And so they have this reminder of the work of God right in front of them. And so they have to collect themselves and they've got to figure out, like, what is our next move going to be? And so they take Peter and they take John and they take the crippled man and they send them out. And it says that they talk to one another or they conferred together. Verse 15 and 16, it says, but when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? They've got to figure out what are we going to do with this situation? For a notable sign has been performed through them, and it's evident to all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. So the miracle has taken place. Everyone is aware of it. All the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they know what happened. And so they step away, and they think about what are we going to do next. And something that stands out to me that's interesting here is what the religious leaders are deliberating about. Right? Because you would think that what they're going to be discussing amongst themselves, these are the educated elite. These are the religious rulers and teachers. Surely what they're going to be talking about amongst themselves is, hey, what about this message that Peter preached? You know, some of the things that he was saying about the resurrection and about the cornerstone, you know, he quoted Psalms. You know, what does this message mean? So surely that's what they would, that's what they would be talking about. Or maybe they'd be talking about the miracle. Like, the miracle. How, how was this man healed? You know, they asked them under what power, what authority did, they, did this miracle take place? And so maybe they're going to talk about how they were able to do this and perform this miracle for this man. Or maybe you recognize the Sadducees are with them. And the Sadducees, you see, they denied the resurrection, not just Christ's resurrection, but they didn't believe in a resurrection at all. And so maybe they're going to come back and they're going to have like a theological discussion or a, or, or a debate about resurrection and whether or not the Old Testament really does, in fact, teach a resurrection. But those are none of the things that they're deliberating about. It says that, their question is not, what are we going to do with this message? It's, what are we going to do with these men? They're deliberating about what to do with Peter and John. It's not the message or the miracle. It's the men that they're concerned about. It's Peter and John. They have to figure out, what are we going to do with them? Because depending on how we handle this situation, it might, it might be a bad look for us in front of the Jewish people. Like, if we don't handle this right, it could come back on us as the religious leaders. And so for them, they're more concerned about how they're, they're standing before the people, then they're concerned about their standing before God. The religious leaders fear the people more than they fear the Lord. You know, last week, Trevor made a really good point that the miracle that was performed was really there to confirm the message that was being preached. But here we see that the leaders acknowledge the miracle, but then they deny the message. They're not concerned about the miracle. The only thing that they're concerned about is what's being taught by Peter and John. So here they are in the face of this undeniable evidence. Remember the, the crippled man, he's healed. He's standing right there in front of them and they still deny the truth. That they're, they're blind to what the miracle is actually showing them. And as Christians, you got to remember that we are going to engage with these people. Like we are going to engage with people whose hearts are so hard that even a miracle happening in front of them would not be enough to convince them of the saving grace of God. Some of you may have experienced people like this. And so you need to know that it's not true when people say to you, well, if I only had a sign, well, then I would believe in Jesus. You know, if God just performed a miracle and I, and I could see the miracle happen, you know, then maybe I would believe in Jesus. It's not true. It's not true. They, they would not believe because their hearts are hard. 
just like the religious leaders' hearts were too hard to recognize, the miracle was really pointing to a greater message. But the religious leaders, they have to do something. They've got to do something with Peter and John. But the problem is this. The problem is that they didn't commit a crime to be charged for. And they they can't deny the miracle that took place. But they have to do something. And so here's what they do. They try to silence them. They can't punish them. They can't deny the miracle. So instead, they're just going to try and silence their message. They try to take away their freedom, their ability to speak openly and freely about Christ. So in verse 17, it says this, But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And so they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So they want to remove their freedom of speech. They want to, they want to take away their freedom to be able to proclaim the good news of Jesus. This message that they're preaching, you see, it's a threat to their authority. The message of the gospel is a threat to the power that the religious leaders held. And so think about this. They don't ask them not to perform any more miracles. Isn't that interesting? They're okay with the miracles. They're okay with the good deed that was performed by Peter and John. You know, they don't, they don't tell them, hey, we don't want to see any more of these crippled people healed and able to walk. They, they don't tell them, we don't want to see any more sick people be healed. They don't say that, you know, we don't want to have any more addictions be broken. We don't want to see any more marriages being saved. None of those things are the problem. You see, it's it's not all the benefits that Christianity has given to the world over the last 2,000 years through the arts and education and hospitals and science and social justice and ending slavery and empowering women and caring for the poor and promoting human rights or the Christian emphasis on kindness and compassion. You can continue with all those things. As a matter of fact, we're just going to continue to reap all the benefits that Christianity has given to the world. Our concern is just about the message. Think about that. Their only concern is about the message of the gospel, that they're no longer to be able to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins. They're no longer to be able to teach about Jesus. You know, Peter, he's been opening up and unpacking the Old Testament to his listeners. He's been, he's been teaching them about how Jesus, he's the, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He's been guiding them and, and showing the way of salvation and they're told that they must stop or there's going to be further consequences for their actions. And I want you to think about something here in this text for just a moment. There's something that's really heartbreaking that I don't want you to miss. And that's the moment that these religious leaders are experiencing. You know, earlier Peter's sermon, he explains to the people, and this is back in chapter 3. He says, look, I know that you acted in ignorance when you killed Jesus, that you acted in ignorance when you crucified Christ. But he says it's okay. That this suffering, it was prophesied. It, it had to happen. It was supposed to happen. You just need to repent. You need to repent of your sins so that you can be forgiven, so that you can experience this life change that comes only through Jesus. And he tells the Jewish people, he tells the religious leaders, he says, look, you, you're the descendants of the prophets, You're you're the ones who are supposed to be the recipients of the covenant that God made with your ancestors. Y'all are supposed to be the ones who received the blessing that God promised all the way back to Abraham. That his nation, his people would be more numbered than the sand on the beach or the stars in the sky. Like that's your people. This promise was for you. 
This was your blessing, and they're supposed to be welcoming the Messiah, and yet here they are still, after all this time, and they're still fighting against him. After he was performing miracles, after he resurrected, and here's the disciples saying, hey, Jesus is still here. His Holy Spirit is present. You can still be saved. And how heartbreaking that they still, after all this, are rejecting who Christ is. This is a heartbreaking moment for the religious leaders. And there's something else I want us to see here also, is that when someone's heart becomes so hardened against the gospel, that the impact is going to move far and beyond just that individual. Look at what he says in verse 17, that in order that it may spread no further among the people. You know, many times when people's hearts become this hard, they're going to do everything they can to try to stop not only themselves from receiving the gospel message, but they're going to go out of their way to ensure that no one else receives the message of the gospel as well. I'm sure we've encountered these sorts of people in our lives as well, that it's not just that they don't want to hear the message. They want to make sure that no one else is going to hear this message either. And this is where the religious leaders' hard hearts have taken them. They want to squelch this message of salvation, of of Jesus and of his resurrection. You see, the early church was growing very rapidly. You know, we're only in chapter four. You remember that in the beginning, there was only how many? There was 120 in the upper room. And then at the beginning of this chapter, after they're arrested, it says that the number of men came to be about 5,000. So this means that the church at this point has likely grown to probably 10,000 or more, maybe even 20,000 members. When you think about husbands and wives and their children. So here we have 10 to 20,000 believers in just a few chapters. But what the religious leaders, they, they fail to understand, what they don't grasp is that in this moment, their persecution and their opposition is actually fanning the flame of the growth of the church. There's a quote by an ancient church father named Tertullian, and he says this, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You know, we look at the church in China, for example, and we see that they're under extreme persecution from the state, that they're under surveillance watch, that they're meeting underground, that they're being regulated, that they're not allowed to have Bibles, that they have to meet in secret in order to worship and in order to gather together as a Christian community. But now it's one of the largest and strongest Christian people on the entire planet Earth, that they've grown from a million members in 1976 to today having over 100 million believers in the country under extreme persecution. And so the religious leaders, they don't want this to happen. They think that we have to get this message stopped now so that this no longer spreads. But unfortunately, what they also fail to remember is that Jesus told Peter something very important. He said that on this rock, he would do what? He would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And so the church is going to continue to grow. We'll actually read in chapter five in just a couple of weeks. Gamaliel, he's one of the Pharisees. He's actually going to call this out to the rest of the religious leaders. He's going to tell them, Whatever you're going to do here, this is after the second time they've been arrested. They only made it one chapter before they get arrested again. They get out again, and he tells the religious leaders, he says, whatever you're about to do with these men, be very careful about the decision that you're going to make. Because either one, 
it's going to die out like all the other religious rebellious groups have died out in the past. Or this move is actually from God and there's nothing that you're going to be able to do to stop it. And in fact, you might actually be opposing God himself. And so we're going to see that in just a couple of weeks. But let's look at how Peter and John, how they respond to this command. So verse 19, it says this, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. And so here's Peter and John there in the face of all this opposition in front of the possibility of suffering and of persecution. And they had a choice. They were presented with a choice. They could either do the thing that was difficult, the thing that was challenging, but it was pleasing to God. Or they could choose to go the route that was free of conflict, the route that was free of pain, free of any challenges, but it would be pleasing to man. And so they have this choice. Will they listen to the religious leaders or will they listen to God? And it says that they spoke up with boldness and with courage before the religious elite. The disciples, you see, they chose to please God instead of pleasing man. And, you know, we find ourselves in a very similar cultural moment now where it's going to continue to be, you know, not just challenging to share our faith, but it's going to continue to grow more challenging just to live out our faith. We're not being murdered. We're not being thrown into prison. But what is happening is we're being shamed into silence. And I think that this may even be more dangerous than if we were actually being killed. You know, what we get is we have these accusations of intolerance, accusations of, of bigotry and, and of hatred. And this has caused many Christians to simply be quiet and cower because like the religious leaders, they're more afraid of the people than they are afraid of God. As Christians, you know, we, we should be standout citizens if we want to get into the conversation, right? They're, they're in front of the, 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 the authority, the government, the religious leaders. They're not in front of Rome. Paul does address uh, more government interaction and what that looks like in Romans chapter 13. But they are in front of authorities. They are in front of religious leaders, the culture shapers of their time. And as Christians, I want to say this too, that, you know, we should be standout citizens, we should be above reproach. We should obey the law. We should follow the rules. We should drive the speed limit. Five miles above the speed limit is okay, from what I understand. But no more than five miles per hour above the speed limit. But what we need to remember is that we have a dual citizenship. That yes, we are in fact citizens of this world, that we are citizens of the United States, but we are also, and more importantly, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Ephesians chapter 2, verse, verse 6 says that we are seated with Jesus in the heavenly places, that this earth is not our home, that our allegiance first is to Christ and second to the state. Paul explains that we should be obedient to the state. This is what we get into in Romans chapter 13, that we need to be obedient to the government, to the governing authorities, even if that ruler is unjust, even if that ruler is cruel or that they're not a believer or if that ruler has politics that we don't agree with, we're still to be obedient. But that obedience ends if we are put into a position where our obedience to the state means disobedience to God. If the state forbids us for doing something that God 
commands us to do. And I believe this is important, this conversation about obedience to the government. This is, I think, a, a bigger topic for another sermon. But I don't think that this is as big of a problem as our engagement with culture, our day-to-day interactions. I think that's a bigger problem. We have, for some reason, put politics on a pedestal and made it seem as though our day-to-day interactions with our friends and our coworkers and our family is, is not as important. But that's not true. The question that we're, that we're seeing in this text is that if we find ourselves in a position where we have to choose between who we're going to be obedient to, are we going to be bold and are we going to be courageous like the disciples in front of the culture makers of our day? Are we going to be obedient to God no matter what it costs us? You know, praise God that we're not in the position of the disciples, that we're not being thrown in prison, we're not being beaten or whipped or flogged or, or murdered. But like I said a moment ago, our culture has placed a pressure and a fear in us that may even be worse than those things. Has anybody ever heard um, the quote, statistic, however you would like to look at it, that you know, many people are more afraid of public speaking than they are of death? Has anybody ever heard that before, that people are more afraid to be in front of people publicly to speak than they, they'd rather die than have to get up on a stage and, and speak? I'm going to say something very controversial. I believe that there are Christians who are more afraid to share their faith than they are afraid to be martyred for their faith. That there are Christians who would rather be silent, that they would rather avoid getting involved with the religious conversation or the political conversation, that they they avoid the, the repercussions that may come with sharing the gospel or of living out their faith with boldness. They would rather die than engage in those things because they're more afraid of people than they are afraid of God. And so for me, I think that is a more dangerous position to be in than to be involved in the church that's being persecuted to the point of imprisonment or death. Because that church is growing and the church of America where it's safe is dying and declining. Because we are not willing to share our faith. We're not willing to live this out with boldness. Now, I'm thankful to be a part of Redemption Church where these things are not true. And we have a bold church and we have a church that's willing to engage in these conversations. And we have a pastor who is willing to, from the pulpit, engage in these conversations. But there are many people who are not. But church, I want us to learn from Peter and John. How could they, this is what it says, we cannot but speak about what we have seen and what we have heard. How could they possibly stop speaking or, or teaching in the name of Jesus? There's miracles being performed. There's people that are, that are being healed. There's people that are hearing the message of the gospel and being saved. People are experiencing life change through Jesus. How could they stop talking about what Jesus has done and what Jesus continues to do? This was the mission that was given to them by Jesus himself. You go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and Jesus tells them, he says, you are going to receive power and you are going to be my witness to the ends of the earth. So this was their mission. This, this was all they knew. This is what they knew they were supposed to be doing. After all they had heard, all they had seen, all they had experienced, after being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Like they were with Jesus when he walked on water, when he, when he raised the dead. They saw him heal the sick and feed the 5,000. They saw him have compassion. They saw him give rest to the weary. How could they stop talking about it all? And if you're a Christian here this morning, Jesus has done a miracle in your life. 
there should never be any reason that you should stop talking about it. What's your story? What, what's your testimony? You know, I, I look back and I can't even step into the shoes of the person that I was 15 years ago because God saved me. Now, I thought it was going to be popularity and promiscuity and music and pleasure. All these, these were going to be the things that would save me and give me happiness and give me contentment. And I found out very quickly that they only led to heartache and to destruction. And then God, he, he drew me close to him and he said, I'll give you peace. I'll give you joy. I'll give you contentment. And he did. How could I not tell people about that? What has God done for you? you you've seen Jesus do the impossible in your life. You see, Peter and John, they were compelled by what they had seen and what they had heard. For them, it was as if they didn't even have a say in the matter at all. It says that we cannot but speak. We're obligated. We don't have a choice. We don't know what else to do. There was this burning desire in their heart to tell the world about Jesus, even if it costs them everything. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, says that he's obligated to preach the gospel. He writes to the church in Corinth that he's compelled to preach. 1 Corinthians 9.16 says, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. He, he pronounces a curse upon himself if he doesn't preach. You see, we are obligated as Christians to share the gospel. Not obligated against our will as though it were something we didn't want to do, but we have to obligated by a, a desire, a burning passion inside of us to want to tell people about what Jesus has done in our lives. Verse 21, he says, as we begin to close, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So as we get to the end of this text, what happens? Well, it says that they lay on more threats. So we see that the persecution is going to persist, that the persecution doesn't end here, but rather it's going to continue. The word that they actually use here for threat, that they continue to threaten in them, is a very strong word. It has this connotation of bad things happening in the future, not, not weak threats. These are, these are strong threats and warnings against the disciples about what will happen if they continue to be disobedient to their authorities and preach and teach in the name of Jesus. You know, we're going to see that these are not just idle threats against the disciples. It, it, really, in just one chapter, they're going to be imprisoned again, but this time before they get released, they're going to be beaten. So they'll be imprisoned and then beaten, and then they'll be released again. But then we see in chapter 6 and 7 that it goes from being imprisoned to being imprisoned and beaten to Stephen becoming the first martyr of the church in just two chapters. The Sanhedrin's heart, the leader's hearts are going to grow harder. They're going to become, it says, filled with jealousy and that they want to kill the disciples. And we still have 24 more chapters to go. What began with an attack on their freedom of speech ended with murder. Now, ultimately here, they, they let him go because, like I said a moment ago, they really had no, no reason to punish them. They hadn't done anything illegal yet to warrant any more, you know, severe punishment. 
And more than that, all the people, they're praising God because of the miracle. So they haven't done anything illegal. And, and it says that all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the sign was evident to them. The people, they recognized that this miracle was from God. And Luke reminds us as readers, he says that the man was 40 years old. You have to remember, he's emphasizing, hey, this guy could not walk since birth. That's how powerful and profound this miracle was to everyone who was a witness to it. And so how could they, they punish the disciples when all the people, the whole town is on the disciples' side, when they all are praising God for the miracle? It wouldn't be a good look on the religious leaders, which is, again, that's their real concern, is how are they going to look to the people? And so they show us once again that they're more afraid of the people than they are afraid of God. And the people, they, they praise God for this miracle that took place. You know, next week, we're going to read about Peter and John, how they bring their story back to their friends. And praise and worship just breaks out at the end of chapter four because of the miracle that God had done, that he had healed this man and God brought them through the persecution and it ended up resulting in praise. The persecution persisted, but praise arose amongst the disciples. You know, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, not for their political stances sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you, want to, if you want to have the boldness, if you want to have the courage that Peter and John had to stand up tall in the face of opposition, I'm going to leave you with four very practical things that you can do. Number one is this, pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. In verse 8 of chapter 4, before Peter addressed the Sanhedrin, it says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 31, when the believers, they're all gathered together and they're worshiping and they're praising God for what he's done. It says that they were all together filled with the Holy Spirit. In chapter 7, before Stephen breathes his last, it says he was filled with the Spirit of God. The moment before he was martyred, he was full of the Holy Spirit. If you want to be able to pour out, you have to be filled up. Being filled with the Spirit was not something that should have happened five years ago and carries you through to today. You need to be like Paul who says, do not be drunk on wine, which is debauchery, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that verb there, to be filled, means to continuously be being filled. That we should be continually praying to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Number two, spend time in God's Word. Because the more that you read your Bible, the more that you're going to see Jesus. And the more you see Jesus, the more that you are going to look like Jesus. And so if you want people to look at you and see Christ in the way that you live, then you have to be full of his word. It will, it will transform you. It will change you. Number three, you need to spend time with God's people. You are going to become the company that you surround yourself with. Byron has a whole message on this, Pastor Byron, when he went through the book of Proverbs, and he talks about friendships and what it means to surround yourself with wise people and not become like the fools. And I think this is so interesting. This is a very simple line that is going to be next week, but I, it's, it's verse 23. But I think this is so profound, even though it's such a simple line that you could pass over. Verse 23, it says, after being released by the council, they went to their friends. They had friends. Peter and John had friends. Like, like the, the early church was a, was a friendship. It was a, it was a community of people who loved being around one another. If you want to be able to be like Peter and John, 
you have to spend time with God's people. Be in a community and around like-minded individuals who are going to encourage you and strengthen you. And the last is this, as we close, is spend time in prayer. The early church was a praying church. Pastor Brian talks very often about how at the beginning of redemption, before our church began to grow, it was because we weren't a praying church. And as soon as we made that decision to begin to go before the Lord in prayer, when we started doing our first Wednesday prayer nights, the, the church caught fire, it exploded. I mean that not literally, but figuratively. <laughs> the church began to blossom and, and grow because of prayer. If you want to be like Peter and John, you have to spend time in prayer. As you read through the book of Acts, you, you see it begins with the apostles and the disciples and the other believers in the upper room, the 120. And what were they doing? They were praying. They were waiting for the spirit of God to be poured out on them. And as you read through the book of Acts, we're going to see all throughout the book of Acts, praying after praying, after prayer, after prayer for God to move and for God to do the miraculous. If you want to be bold, if you want to be courageous, if you want to be able to stand firm when there's opposition against the gospel, if you want to see praise arise in the midst of persecution, you have to spend time in prayer. You can't be in communion only with your friends, even though you need to do that, but you also need to be in communion with God.